are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode uh, 511 uh, of the Survival Podcast. And today, you know what we're going to talk about? We're going to talk about weeds. Well, those things that are out there just growing around there. You can go out and forage and you can eat, but we're going to talk about them in an interesting way. I've got ten of them today. Ten weeds, if you want to call them that. One's actually a tree. Uh, but the rest are, you know, we call them weeds. I think 99% of people in the world would call them weeds that you can eat that have nutritional value. Uh, not real high calorie crops, but good nutritional value. Uh, one that's a pretty good calorie crop, actually, as well. Uh, they grow all over the United States. I'd say if you're anywhere in the lower 48, and a few of them probably grow up in parts of Alaska even, and I'm sure some of this stuff grows in Hawaii, um, you're going to be able to go out and find some of this stuff. Maybe not all of it, but some of it. But we're not just going to talk about going out, finding it, foraging for it, and eating it and living off the land. We're going to talk about bringing it home and planting it in our backyards. And we might find that some of these things are already growing in our backyards, and we might be calling them weeds. We're going to talk about how they can be used, what they're good for, how we can get a hold of uh, seeds for them if we can't find them, and some reasons that we would want to do this. Who the hell wants to grow weeds other than people that grow weed to sell it on you know the black market? But when we talk about weeds in general, who wants to grow weeds? Well, I do, and when I'm done today, maybe you will too. Before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and talk about uh, or take care of our housekeeping, I should say. Housekeeping item one is always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Safe Castle Royal. Uh, Safe Castle is a great source of everything you could possibly want for your prepping needs, especially long-term storage food, uh, 12-volt appliances to work with your solar and wind setups, along with some solar and, uh, and wind product as well, some great survival product. It is a great place, and it's run by a great guy named Vic Rontala who uh, even has gone as far as to, as to put together uh, an advisory council, which I happen to be a member of. So does Ron Hood, one of my good friends, uh, Raleigh Degato from uh, MMA Fighting, and quite a few other gentlemen that he looks to us to kind of look at stuff and go, yeah, that's good, that belongs there, no, maybe you should replace that, or here's a better option. So he really tries to go the extra mile to serve uh, his, his customers, which is you know what we look for in a sponsor. Uh, additionally, he has a great discount membership. It's $29 for a lifetime membership. You get big discounts on everything he sells from that point on. Member support brigade members, guess what? You get that for free. So that pays $29 of your first, uh, you know, your first year's cost of the MSB. Uh, just something to think about. Next up is Knife Kits. KnifeKits.com, one of our new sponsors. They have a special offer for Members Brigade members. I'm going to try to get that into the uh, the uh, Members Brigade area. Uh, they just put that up last week. I'm going to try to get that in before I leave this week. More on that in a minute. But Knife Kits is a great site because whether you are a custom blade maker looking for pure raw materials or someone just getting into fabricating your own knives and you need more of really a kit, you can get anything like that. You can get you know, raw materials for building handles and blades, or you can get kind of a stab together, put together, and you just kind of finish it and, and make it fit right kit. 
Uh, and again, anything in between that. And, and not just fixed blades either. You can do that with folders and, and other things. So check out KnifeKits.com. I do think knife making is a skill that America is losing. And uh, Knife Kits is well thought of everywhere we check them out. Any kind of blade maker form or something like that, they were considered one of the favorites. So we were happy to bring them on as a sponsor of the show. Next up, remember to check out our gear shop shirts, hats, uh, all kinds of new stuff, mugs, uh, and some really cool stuff coming. Uh, we're going to try to get some new cool stuff into the store before Christmas for you. Uh, adding new stuff is not the easiest thing in the world when we get into things outside of kind of the the, uh, the T-shirt type and then the mug type thing. We do have Zazzle uh, now as one of our suppliers. So some of the items, when you go to get them, they'll be off the store. But that lets you customize them. That means if you say, can I have a triple extra large, we can say yes. If you say, can I have a pink shirt? Yes. Can I have a red shirt? Yes. Green? Yes. Great. You get it, right? So the Zazzle stuff's a little bit more expensive. You customize it exactly the way you want it. Uh, we make less money, but, uh, you know, that way you get what you want. That's why we decided to add Zazzle. Now let's sis, sis Wolf, Tiffany Rockwell, really focus on putting together some cool designs for you because she loves to do that. Uh, next up, uh, remember, uh, we're doing a special show, episode 550. Dial 866-65-THINK. Leave a two-minute message about what the Survival Podcast has meant to you uh, over the last year or two, how you've changed your life. If you want to get an idea of what kind of call to do, listen to our one-year anniversary show. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members and lots of other great stuff like I already mentioned. On the MSB and on what I said we would cover right, right at the end of housekeeping, I'm going away to the bug-out location Friday. So you might think there not, may not be a show Friday. There will be a show Friday. There will not be a show tomorrow. I'm going to take tomorrow off because I have a lot of things in the uh, members brigade that before I leave here tomorrow afternoon, I really need to, uh, to clean up, to get right for you. I've got some messed up links back there. I've got some new benefits that need to go in there. And I've just got a ton of stuff, and I want to get out of here as early as possible tomorrow uh, so I can get up. I'm heading up to the deer, uh, bug out location, and what I'm doing up there is just setting up a deer feeder. Uh, so this is kind of I'll be back Saturday type of thing. So I'm going to record Friday's show today after I get to, done with this one. So it's going to strain my voice with this cold. Well, I'm going to do two shows in one day, hold that show to Friday. It'll be a call-in show like always. To make up for it, I'm going to tell you right now that there will be a discount that runs Friday through um, Sunday for the Member Support Brigade. I'm going to give you the discount now. I'll repeat it on Friday show. I'm going to do it now for people that don't get to listen to the Friday show until the next week. Um, it will not work until Friday morning. But the discount is going to be, since I'm going to the bug out location, B-O-L. Bug out location, and that'll get you $15 off your first year. It means your first year will be $35. Bucks. Okay, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. And let's 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 uh, chat about um, kind of why I wanted to do this and, and you know what the point is and why you know I said why would we want to grow weeds in the first place? Well there's a lot of reasons. One is, you know, I hear from people time to time with all the gardening talk, permaculture talk that I do that say, hey man, if I've got all this beautiful landscape garden and fruit trees and nut trees and stuff like that and uh, the shit hits the fan, man, people are gonna come steal my stuff. Well if you exist, you know, people are gonna come steal your stuff. If you're there, people are going to come steal your stuff. If you're alive, they're going to know you have things. Remember, we don't prepare just for the end of the world as we know it. We prepare to live a better life today, even if it doesn't get any worse than it is. We prepare to live a better life tomorrow if it gets a little bit, a lot worse, or completely to the end of the earth, and anything in between. We're not just concerned with 
you know, the end is coming, because we're not that kind of people here. We're sane, rational people that understand sometimes stuff goes wrong. But we also understand the extreme can happen. And there could be situations where food is scarce enough that a lot of the things that you would take for granted as being able to grow could disappear. So one of the nice things about planting weeds is most people don't know how to use and eat them. And it's kind of a covert food. So that's one reason that we're talking about these today. It's a covert way to grow. And there's a lot of other things we can grow covertly other than the stuff we're talking about today. Some of it is more recognizable if you cut it up for somebody and put it on a plate. You know, or put it in a, in a case in a supermarket. Oh, that's food. But growing out in, in the, in the, uh, in the yard, especially in kind of an unkempt way, people don't see it as food. So this is kind of an entry into that whole stealth gardening thing. Uh, the next one is they're weeds. And what does that mean? I mean, most of us go pulling weeds out after pulling weeds out after pulling weeds out and they keep coming back. Now, unfortunately, a lot of those weeds that keep coming back are not really good for anything, but the ones that are, um, what a great thing. Think about it this way. If I gave you peppers, and I gave you like 10 pepper plants, and you threw them in your, your garden, and you went out and the next day yanked them out of the ground, there'd be no more peppers. But if you have something like chickweed or lamb's quarter growing natively on your property, once it's established, you can pull it out, pull it out, pull it out, and it just keeps coming back. Well, if it's something we can eat, isn't it great that we have something so easy to grow that we can't kill it? I mean, isn't that an ideal plant if it is indeed edible, good-tasting, and nutritious? Well, everything I'm going to give you today is edible, good-tasting, and nutritious to varying degrees. The next one is they're self-propagating. Some of them because they are perennials. They just have a deep root system and they just keep growing every year. Some of them because they reseed themselves. For instance, lamb quarters at the end of its growing cycle produces just a, a ton of seed. That seed drops to the ground and it, it's going to come back year after year once it's established. But again, think about this. How hard it is. I mean, a lot of you guys have been gardening for the first or second year ever at this point from listening to this show. And it's fun. It's extremely mentally satisfying. I think if every person in America would plant, let's say, two four by eight gardens and cultivate just that much, and that was it, that's all they ever did, and did it as easy and as, with as much automation, but still had to take, put their hands on it and go out there and pick and take care of things and see a plant's not doing well and either fix it or replace it and what have you, I think we would put at least half, if not more, of all the psychiatrists and psychologists out of business in this country. We would definitely devastate the psychotropic drug industry because a lot of problems people think they have would go away. So it is a good thing to get out there and garden. But it's also hard work. And it's one thing to take care of, you know, 30 square feet or something like that. But when you start wanting to grow a lot of food, having that kind of annual vegetable patch and then having as much else out there that just kind of takes care of itself. It doesn't really need you other than when you go out and harvest it or check on it. It's a good way to keep a lot of food coming in throughout a big period of the year so that you actually can develop some self-sufficiency with it. Remember, we're not just growing food because we want to you know, eat healthier food and better tasting food. We're growing it because we're dependent as a people today on multiple systems, one being the food system and the other being the energy systems that get the food to us. Because there are so many different energy systems that involve getting lettuce to your plate from Argentina, it's unbelievable because there's an energy system that produces high nitrogen fertilizer, 
um, from the uh, derivatives of natural gas so that the Argentinian can fertilize it for you. There's an energy system that provides fuel for his tractors and his equipment. There's an energy system that provides tr uh, fuel for transportation to get that food to a, a distribution facility. And then there's a transportation system on a boat that get, or a plane that gets it shipped here using more energy, and it just keeps going from there. It probably goes to a warehouse, uh, a centralized warehouse, from a centralized warehouse to a localized warehouse. So it goes from massive re, uh, wholesalers, uh, Inc., down to Walmart's distribution channel, and then into the individual store. And then you have to drive out there and get it. And there are so many cogs in those works that can break down and make that food either cost more or unavailable to you, that that's a big reason that we grow our own food. Now, if we want to even be 20-25% self-sufficient, we have got to get some of the things in our backyards, if we have lives, doing their own thing. We have to. It's a, If you live on your homestead and you can spend... Four to five hours a day out in your yard, then you can do all kinds of high-maintenance stuff, and you can get 50%, maybe even 100% at some parts of the year out of your backyard. If you get in your car every morning like most people and drive off to a job somewhere, and you do something other than work on your homestead, come home and you have maybe a half hour in the evening to water and things like that, you have got to get some things doing stuff for themselves if you want to have a continuous food supply. When you have self-propagating weeds that you can eat, you have just that. The next is they're highly adapted. Think about if a plant can grow untouched by man. Big plant grows, seeds fall off, blow in the wind, animals eat it, people trample it, people spray it, people weed eat it, people do everything they can to get rid of it. And it's absolutely given no protection, no special irrigation, no nothing, and all of a sudden, pop, 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 there it is, it's back. How adapted does a plant have to be to do that? Well, that's because a lot of these plants are either natives to the United States or they're natives to climates that are almost identical to the United States. And they were brought here. We call them aliens. I think we need to start calling those plants naturalized plants at this point. Lamb's quarters, which we'll talk about in a bit, perfect example. It's, it's from Europe and Asia. But at this point, it's so many places and so many varieties and small leaf varieties and large leaf varieties and tall varieties and short varieties and it's everywhere and it grows on its own and it's been here for over 150 years and it's, it's a native now, folks. Bill uh, Mollison, one of the founders of permaculture, stated, uh, I only use native plants. 100% of what I plant is native to planet Earth. And, and that's kind of how I look at most of these as well. They're natives. They're natives because they've adapted to the point where they now live here. If lamb's quarter is not native to the United States, then no human being is native to the United States. Because even the first, what we call true Native Americans, migrated here thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Best estimate somewhere preceding 10,000 B.C. across the ice shelf between Siberia and Alaska. So at this point, I consider these all to be natives, and because of that, they're highly adapted. Next is they're good to eat. They taste good. Who the hell wants to grow something that tastes like crap, you know? Um, my uh, one uncle, who was a little off, uh, when, when people used to talk to him about, you know, you know, improving his grass, he said, you know what, this is the way I look at anything growing around my house that I have to take care of. If I can't eat it, sell it, 
or smoke it, I'm going to kill it. Again, he said, if I can't eat it, sell it, or smoke it, I'm going to kill it. In other words, I'm not going to put a lot of energy and effort into uh, maintaining a beautiful lawn full of Bermuda grass or when I don't, or Kentucky ryegrass or whatever, when I don't really have any use for it. So I'll focus on making sure the things that actually provide something for me uh, are, are there. And kind of in that spirit, if it wasn't good to eat, I wouldn't do it. I'm not going to give you anything today that if you go and try it, you're going to be like, oh, that's that's nasty, unless you just don't care for it. I mean, there's plenty of things out there that are considered delicacies that, that some people just don't care for. Caviar. People pay, you know, high dollar for caviar, and some people like it, some people don't. Yesterday, after I got done with the show, I've been like, I've been working my butt off. I want to give myself a little bit of a reward. There was nobody available to go with me, and I just said, the hell with it. And I took myself to a place called Piranha Killer Sushi. And I proceeded to blow about 20 bucks on a couple really nice sushi rolls, and I sat there and I ate sushi. And some people go, well, where I'm from, we call that bait. So I'm not guaranteeing you you're going to like this stuff, but I'm going to tell you there's nothing here uh, that that is you know in any way off-putting uh, to to the majority of people anyway. And another reason to do this is at some point we may be out in the wilderness by choice uh, or by uh, failure or by necessity, and at some point in that whole rigmarole, it may be necessary for us to be able to feed ourselves. In that, you know, survivor man type of way. Now, again, I said that could be because we've chosen to do it to test our skills. It could be because uh, we're in a, a legitimate emergency or because for some reason or another, and I'll leave it to you to extrapolate, you've had to go there. And if we do that, it's not the time to start trying to figure this stuff out. And will that plant make me sick, kill me, or or provide me with nutrition? And that all comes down to positive identification. Well, the good news here is a lot of these plants are not only easy to identify, if you can't locate them and you're not sure is this really what this plant is, most of them you can get seed for or plant for or rhizome for, and you can order them and have them sent to you by someone that's already verified what they are. You can plant them into the ground and you can grow them. And instead of looking at like 20 different pictures online that all look a little bit different, you're not quite sure, and this book looks different than that book, and this is a sketch, and is that really the color? You go, and you put it in your hand, and you go, okay, that's what lamb's quarter is. That's what plantain is. right? That's what aronia is. That's what a ground cherry looks like. That's what ground nut looks like. And some of these other things we're going to talk about today. And I could probably do 10 shows like this and end up with 100 different plants that you can do this with. And maybe I'll keep doing it because I think it's a good thing that we do. But it's the learning of a positive identification that I think is extremely valuable here as well. Because as easy it is, it is for me to say that lamb's quarters are completely easy to identify, it's because I've grown up pulling pieces of them off the, off the plant my entire life and eating them, you know, sitting on the side of a, of a creek bed fishing for bullhead catfish when I was 12 years old uh, with little pieces of hot dog and, and taking some of my hot dog that I was using for bait and wrapping it up in lamb's quarter and eating it. So it's easy for me to say that, but it's also, you know, I feel like I have a responsibility to make sure that when I tell you something's easy to identify, you actually can identify it. So I'm going to also recommend a resource today before I get into these individual plants. Uh, it's called Eat the Weeds. It's on YouTube. And it's by a guy named Green Dean, who I'm going to try to get on this show to interview. I've talked to him before. I've just never been able to pull that together. 
anyway, I'm going to try to do more uh, interviews going forward, but uh, I think Dean would be a great guy to get on. I'm going to give you a link to uh, his YouTube channel and his site today because he goes into these a lot more, and he has some very specific ways to help you identify plants. But again, I believe that the way that most native peoples throughout time have learned what a plant is, is somebody did the hard work early on and ate stuff and got sick and threw up and watched the animals and tried little bits of it and little bits more and eventually determined this plant's safe to eat. And then once that knowledge was in the tribe, so to speak, father took son into the field and said, this is, and, and mother took daughter and said, this is, this is good and this is bad. And they put their hands on it and they smelled it and they tasted it. And they crumbled it up in their hands and they smelled it, you know. And they washed it and they said, this is what it looks like in the spring and this is what it looks like in the fall. And this is what the seed looks like. And the seed is good to eat or the seed, if you do this with it and throw it over here, it'll grow back next year. And when you start bringing these plants from known uh, strains into your yard and into even surrounding land, because if you live, a lot of people have land around them that's not theirs and it's really kind of up for grabs and, you know, there's stuff on there and anybody can walk on it, but nobody really owns it and you can't go over there and start gardening. But you know what? If some miner's lettuce shows up on there, no one's going to get their feelings hurt. So it can be either grown in your backyard or adjacent land or even in some public lands. This is great stuff for gorilla gardening. But when you start doing any of this stuff with it and you know you put the seed there, you watch the little shoot come up, you don't just learn what the plant looks like when it's fully grown. right? You learn what it looks like as it grows, when it's a baby. So now I know when I walk through the woods and I see these little seedlings what they are. And I know to kind of make a mental note or a GPS mark or a map mark or something to come back here. And if I know the growth cycle of the plant and I know if they're seedlings now, 50 days later they should be in full full growth, that there's food there. So I learned so much with positive identification beyond just what the plant looks like. It's growth cycles. It's timings in my region. Because the book says, well, May to, May to, you know, May to June. Well, that's a long period of time, you know. Some of the books say May to August or May to September. But when is it really working for me in my area? When should I be out looking for this? What does this plant look like at its end of life? You know? When it's when all the leaves have fallen off, but it's still got seed heads on it. So now I'm out in the fall, and I know how to recognize this plant. I can harvest those seeds. I can either gorilla garden and seed them out there in the wilderness. I can bring them home. I can use them in seed exchanges. But at least I can identify. And I can identify at all life cycles. Very important. So let's start talking about these ten plants that I have for you today. Some of them I have talked about before in, in various different uh, uh, concepts, and some I've never talked about before. First one I've definitely talked about before. It's called aronia. Aronia is kind of a star in Europe. People love it over there. People are growing it over there. They're cultivating it over there. There's even new domesticated varieties out of Europe that you can buy. A great place to get your hands on aronia uh, plants and, and rootstock is from uh, Rain Tree Nursery. Uh, but there's a lot of aronia just growing wild out there, and it's pretty easy to propagate from the seed. Aronia is a berry. And the best way to think of aronia is you can do anything with aronia that you would do with cranberries, except they're smaller and mushier. But they have a very similar, they don't taste the same, but they have a similar, what I would call a flavor profile. And if you like cranberry or you've had cranberry, you know what I mean. It's mostly tart, but there is a sweetness there. And there's a sweetness there that can be enhanced with any kind of a sweetener like uh, stevia uh, for a natural sweetener or honey for a natural sweetener or good old-fashioned sugar. And they have a potential to be used in cooking. 
I actually like to eat them out of hand. And some of the new European cultivars uh, that have been kind of like worked with by man and selectively bred for a while uh, are still extremely hardy, extremely easy to reproduce, uh, but they're a little bit better for eating out of hand. But where they really excel is for cooking, for anything that you need that tartness, anything you'd use a cranberry with. So they go right with fowl, uh, like chicken, uh, duck, goose. Uh, I actually one time did simmered squirrel uh, in, a, in a sauce made from aronia and some other herbs and things, and it was pretty freaking amazing. Um, I, I think they would go wonderful with rabbit, and they're great for making wine. Uh, I've never tried it, but I would believe that aronias would be great for making beer. They're high in vitamins, including vitamin C, so it's a great way uh, to have a vitamin C item around. The berries can be dried out almost like a raisin. I mean, there's just so much going for this plant, and it's a native of the United States. And the Europeans have kind of latched onto this and said, hey, this belongs in our garden. This belongs in our permaculture. They're bringing it in, and they're like, this is an exotic. And we, around here, you know, cut it down along with things like elderberry, which isn't on today's list, but native elderberries are another plant you could add to this list. And we're out weed whacking these things, you know. And, and uh, so aronia is a great plant to look at. The next one I have for you today is something that a lot of people probably have in your yard right now. And it's called chickweed. And I think chickweed is something that people really look at, you know, using that last part of its uh, word, weed. And chickweed has so many things going for it. It's extremely nutritious. It's one of the best tasting, what I would call true weeds, uh, that you can, you can do these types of things with. I mean, let's just start off by looking at some of the nutrients uh, provided in chickweed. Not only does it taste good, it has absorbic acid, of course that's vitamin C, beta-carotene, calcium, magnesium, niacin, potassium, riboflavin, selenium, thiamine, zinc, uh, and, and GLA, which is uh, gamma-linic acid. Those are all great things to have in our bodies. And it really kind of tastes like corn silk to a degree, a degree. And it's similar in texture more to spinach or lettuce. I think it's something that a lot of people maybe have to get a little bit accustomed to because we're not accustomed to eating corn silk because corn silk doesn't really, it doesn't go down well. I mean, it doesn't taste bad. If you ever tasted some corn silk, and I mean when it's not completely uh, dried out, it doesn't, if you get a piece of it in your mouth when you're eating corn, you're not like, ugh, that's not gag reflex. It's just long and stringy and fibrous. Well, this is that flavor with something that's far more edible. And uh, it is something that you also would be able to use cooked as a pot herb or simmered. It's something you definitely do not want to overcook. It's really easy to turn it into complete mush. Uh, but chickweed, uh, it, on Green Dean's uh, site, he has a, a, a article called uh, Chickweed Connoisseur. And some of the recipes he have inclu includes a chickweed pie and a chickweed bread. So I'm going to put a link off to that article today from today's show notes and just tell you that chickweed isn't just a weed. I also will find a source of seeds for you. I believe it's Seeds of Change or Johnny Seeds or somebody, I'll find it for you, actually offers seeds for chickweed. And I think in their little you know promo they said, doesn't everybody already have chickweed? And the answer is no. A lot of people don't. And again, it's down to positive identification as well. Uh, the next one is kind of picking up as a cultivated crop. And I think a lot of people don't realize where it comes from. And they don't realize it is native to the United States, and it is a wild plant. 
Uh, in most places where it's harvested from the wild, people call it husk tomato. Uh, I don't really get that other than it sort of looks like tomato in a way. It, it looks a lot more like tomatillo, and some of you probably know what I'm talking about by now, and it's called ground cherry. Ground cherry is native to the United States. It will reseed itself like crazy. As those of you who have tried it from my other mentions about it uh, know by now, ground cherry basically is ripe when the, when the fruit falls off the vine. And a uh, little papery husk gets kind of uh, almost like a, it'll almost disintegrate. It's so dried out when you just push the little berry out of the husk. I have actually uh, picked a lot of ground cherries as well, even though they stayed away from the fall. Because you can tell when they're just about to fall, you touch them and they fall off into your hand. Uh, kind of like picking figs when they're fully ripe. Um, this is a great plant. And it's got so many things going for it. Those of you who have tried growing something I've talked about as well called garden huckleberry that think, well, it's kind of, it grows like crazy, but it's a little bit bland and it has to be sweetened. Ground cherry has a really great flavor in of itself. Um, it is somewhere between pineapple and tomato and cherry. And that's the best I can do for you. If somebody says, what does a ground cherry taste like? I would say, well, it actually tastes like a ground cherry. And, and I don't really consider it tasting much like a true cherry at all. Um, the thing with these things, and I've learned this year, and I will never do this again. This year, I planted ground cherry from seed, and uh, I'll do that again. And I put them into my square foot garden, and it, you know everything I've read on them says grow them like tomatoes. And uh, other than some of the wild ones we could find and just you know harvest at will in Pennsylvania, I'd never actually grown ground cherry before. I just picked it from the wild. And so I did exactly what everything said to, to do. Every book, every article, everything I ever read on them, treat them like a tomato, one square foot. Uh, I now have this massive tangle of ground cherry that's grown into itself. It actually makes it very hard to get the fruit that's fallen off. Uh, it's spread out into the yard. I've had to trim it back. It grows like a vine. It's unbelievable the way, and I guess it is a vine, it's unbelievable the way these things grow given the right conditions. Uh, in the future, I will space them much further out. I don't believe they need to be in my my beds. I believe they have so much uh, adaptability that they can be grown kind of into the zone two instead of the zone one in a permaculture model. Uh, as long as they're well irrigated and given good nutri nutrient-rich soil, they're going to do well. And I'm going to give them more support and let them grow more vertical in the future because that will make harvesting them as they fall. Because once these things, here's the thing about a ground cherry, once it starts to produce, it produces like crazy. And basically the way you do it is every morning you walk out there and everything that's laying on the ground that you didn't pick up yesterday, you pick up. And as long as it doesn't have insects or something in it, that's a good one and you're done. And then maybe you shake it and any that fall off, you pick them up. And you just keep doing that day after day after day. They are great eating fresh. They would make great jelly. I don't know that they would be very good at any kind of a wine or a beer. I'm not, I'm not really looking at them that way. They're more of kind of a sweet tropical fruit type substitute. Uh, the way we've eaten most of them though is just out of hand. I will tell you this. Everybody I've ever handed one to has either been like, wow, that's amazing, or nah, I don't like that. Right, this is one of those things I said that it doesn't really have anything wrong with it. It's not like a gross thing that you force down, but some people will not care for it. In the background of these is a hint of the only thing I can describe it like is anise, which is a black licorice flavor. And some people find that, and this very in the background, some people I've found that even like that flavor because it's combined with this tropical fruit flavor, don't care for it. So this might be something, if you can get your hands on it, you might want to try it um, before uh, you eat it. Now, 
I've heard, and I've not tried anything with making jellies or cooking it into any kind of a sauce yet, that when you cook them and add a little bit of sweetener, that flavor declines, and the overall uh, flavor is really good. So I'm going to try some ground cherry sauce cooked up as kind of a meat side dish and see how that works out, and I'll let you guys know in the future. The next one is really the only what I would call heavy uh, calorie crop if grown in large quantities. Uh, it also has so many things going for it, it's unbelievable. I think everybody should be growing this anywhere where the plant will grow well, and it'll grow well most of the United States. It's a native to the northeastern uh, woods of the United States, and it's called groundnut. Groundnut is, well, what it sounds like. It looks very much like a nut or a tuber, and it grows in the ground. Uh, I have uh, one of the articles I wrote for Ron Hood's Survival Magazine actually had uh, groundnut pictures in it that I had harvested from the wild for uh, cultivating uh, on, on my own property. So it's a good plant to do that with. It grows kind of a long, stringy vine with these little green leaves. And eventually they form little root systems that you know, come off the vines and go into the ground and establish new root systems, and this is how the plant reproduces. As that happens, in that second year, it produces a big, lumpy tuber that kind of looks like a cross between a chestnut and a small potato. And the flavor is actually very close to just that, without quite that much of a, more like a, te a texture of a chestnut and a flavor very akin to a potato. Decent amount of uh, calories in them. High nutrition, very, very high in protein. This is a plant that was kicked around for a while back in the 1800s, 1700s, uh, with thoughts of big commercial aspirations. But the farmer life being tough and always needing to make some money so that you survive to the next season has a hard time growing things that take two years to produce. And that's the key with groundnut. But on small scale, once you get a patch established, you can harvest from a year after year, after year, after year. And as long as you leave, let's say, 20% of the tubers in the ground for repropagation, they'll come back year after year after year. Another thing is, you can dig them up any time of year. So if they're needed in an emergency, if there's a tuber down there, it's ready to go. It's not like you have to wait for tubers to form. If there's a patch of ground nut that's been established for a few years, there's always going to be some tuber down there that can be harvested, and it's always ready and available to go. Very easy to propagate. You dig tubers up, you plant them somewhere else, they grow. It's that easy. You can get tubers uh, online. There's a site called Sand Mountain Herbs. I really dig this site. I found a lot of things available at Sand Mountain Herbs that I have not been able to find anywhere else, including things like lam uh, uh, lamb's quarter seed I've seen that they have for sale there as well, sorrel seed, some other things we're going to talk about today. So Sand Mountain Herbs is definitely one of the resources you'll want to take advantage of from today. Groundnut uh, also has some other really kind of great medicinal um, characteristics. One being that it's very, um, it's a very good uh, inulin substance, which means it's perfect for diabetics. So for a lot of diabetics that, you know, eating white potato sends that blood sugar skyrocketing. It's a good substitute for potato because of inulin and because of its high protein versus carbohydrate um, uh, composition. So it's, it's exceptional for that as well. Now you want to make it better? Um, it's actually a good appetite suppressant. So people struggling with obesity that are trying to diet can use it as an appetite suppressant. What does it mean for shit hit the fan, though, when times are tough and we have to ration food? It makes it easier to go with food rationing. It's also high in niacin. 
Uh, just like I said for diabetics, anybody with any kind of a blood sugar disorder, it's a very blood leveling uh, substance, uh, a sh blood sugar leveling substance. So hypoglycemia, uh, hyperglycemia, uh, the, those types of disorders, it's very helpful with. So, you know, groundnut, again, another one of those things I think you should just consider uh, growing somewhere in your own backyard because it has so many things uh, indeed going for it. The next one I want to talk to you about today is purslane. Uh, purslane I have growing in my garden this year for the first time that I've, I've grown it at home. I was able to find, um, I, I'd actually grown something called lemon purslane uh, before from seeds that I had purchased, and it never did very well. I was able to find a purslane that, w a purslane that was growing native uh, in one of the small parks in Arlington. It just looks like a plain old garden variety purslane. It does have a lemony flavor, but it's not this golden lemon stuff that they were selling from the seed house. And when I first found it, I'm like, okay, there it is, where the seeds come from. It had little flowers on it. And I took some of it, and I went back, and what happens is, is the flowers fall off, there's these little cases. They look like a little kind of pyramid-shaped green, same color as the leaf case, and over time it starts to fade in color. Well, if you pop open that little, it's a little tiny case. There's just a ton of little bitty tiny black seeds in the, inside there, and that's purslane seed. And I was able to go out and harvest a bunch of this seed and threw some in my flower pots and my, just tossed it, just figured, hey, let's see what happens. Tossed it in some of the flower beds, tossed it in some of the garden beds, tossed it in some of the pots, and it's done quite well this year. And I'm using what's being cultivated around here now to build up seed stocks and try to establish this in Arkansas. Purslane will die at the first hint of a frost. It is a summer crop. It's pretty good at holding off its germination, though. So even in a place where you have you know, late spring frost and all, it tends to hold back showing up until the right time. So it's a good self-propagator. It tastes very good. It's, a, it's another um, plant that has a lot of things going from it from a standpoint of uh, nutritional value. Again, it's not a high-calorie crop, but a lot of nutrition there. Let me just give you a, a bit of nutritional uh, skinny, so to speak, on uh, purslane. Number one, its leaves contain a huge amount of omega-3 fatty acids. That's the stuff that people say we should eat things like salmon uh, and other oily fish for. 100 grams of fresh purslane leaves provide about 350 uh, milligrams of uh, alpha-linaic acid. Um, this is stuff that helps prevent heart disease, stroke, uh, prevents the development of ADHD, autism and other developmental uh, diseases in, in children. Uh, and if it does that, I would say that it probably couldn't hurt to help starve off things like uh, senile dementia and Alzheimer's disease. I'm not saying it's a cure for it or anything. I'm just saying that if it works in that way, that that's been you know tied to uh, early mental de 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 uh, problems with uh, mental disorders uh, that, that affect the, the neurological portion of the brain and cause uh, things like autism have been shown to be similar in certain ways to uh, late, uh, late stage things like autism and senile dementia. So it couldn't hurt, let's just put it that way. Um, it's also an excellent source of vitamin A. And uh, one of the highest uh, vitamin A uh, green vegetables out there. Rich source of vitamin C. It has some of the B-complex vitamins like riboflavin, niacin, niacin, and carotenoids. Uh, has some minerals like iron, magnesium, calcium, potassium, and manganese. Uh, and, I mean, there's more. I mean, I, I could do a whole, you know, it would get boring, but I could do a whole 
you know, half hour on just the nutritional value of purslane. And what do we see purslane as when we see it growing around? We usually see it as a weed. It's got to be gotten rid of. It's, you know, we got to chop it down, pull it out, what have you. Um, and it's an amazing, good tasting crop. It's a great thing to make those summer salads with in those hot areas, uh, where it's hard to grow lettuce. So, uh, a summer salad for me here, like yesterday, I went out to the garden. Here's what I picked. I picked some lamb's quarter leaves. I picked some New Zealand spinach leaves. I picked some of the, uh, the purslane. I picked some Swiss chard. I chopped up a couple uh, peppers, one of my last uh, cucumbers for the year, and that was my salad. And uh, that's not the salad you get at the salad bar, so to speak, but hell of a lot better for you than iceberg lettuce. A hell of a lot more nutritious. Really tasted good, and the purslane gave it this lemony kind of uh, counterbalance where you don't even need really to have any kind of a salad dressing. Just the salt and pepper was all that I had on the purslane acting as kind of like a substitute. It didn't taste like vinegar, but a substitute for the way vinegar creates a bite in your salad. It was uh, it was really good. Um, next one I want to go to is called Maypop. This is also one I've talked about before. Maypop is the North American uh, native uh, passion flower. And most species of passion flower, we can only grow in places like Hawaii and the very southernmost tips of Florida, maybe down in the absolute uh, southern tip of Texas, most southern reaches of California. And in some places, like even that, that far south, there's still things that can kill it, make it die to the ground, and it won't come back. Where most passion flower that's grown in the United States is grown by greenhouse enthusiasts and taken indoors and grown in pots. Uh, which is a shame because passion fruit is a great thing to cook with. It's not really my favorite thing to cut open and just start eating, but there's a lot you can do with passion fruit as a cook. And it brings kind of that tropical feel, and you can make jellies with it and other types of sauces, uh, but it brings that tropical feel to the temperate regions. Maypop, unlike all other passion flora that I know of, actually will grow in places where it gets damn cold, below zero cold. And when that happens, of course, the whole vine dies and it goes right back to the ground. But the perennial root system stays put, and next season, up it comes out of the ground. And by May, there's flowers and fruit popping up everywhere. That's why they call it May Pop. They also call it that, I think, uh, Green Deed said something about people walking through areas where it's growing, and if you step on the fruit, they, you know, pop. Uh, but May Pop is one I won't go too deep into, because what more do you need? You've got a tropical passion fruit that you can grow in, in your colder regions of the United States, that's easy to grow, that comes back year after year, and has these gorgeous flowers. So, uh, and it's also something that it, you could have, you know, vining up, um, you know, arbors and pagodas and things like that, and or fencing or what have you. And most people would look at it and go, "It's a weed." They wouldn't really, or it's a flower. They wouldn't really realize that it's an edible food source. It does have some decent nutritional profile as well. Here's a few benefits of uh, passion fruit juice. Um, It's actually been shown to reduce cancer cell growth, and there's a ton of research on the way about that. So nothing uh, nothing can guarantee that you won't get cancer, but it doesn't hurt to have things that are known to inhibit cell growth as part of your diet. It has uh, potassium, phosphorus, sodium, zinc, copper, selenium, um, calcium, iron, magnesium, manganese, niacin, vitamin B6, folate, uh, vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin K, uh, beta-carotene, vitamin A. Uh, a little bit of protein, 
most of the carb, uh, the uh, calories are made up from sugar. So about 11 grams per serving. So it's a good overall nutritional boost. It has some sugar content in it to get some calorie uh, count up in it. And uh, again, it has that kind of tropical uh, flavor that you're bringing into our otherwise, you know, if you look at our native plants in the United States, most of them are pretty poor in, in calories and they're kind of bland in flavor compared to things like bananas and mangoes and things that we're able to get, you know, from overseas. Uh, the next one I have for you today is one that every person that goes into the wilderness, especially in northern climates, should be familiar with uh, because it's a staple uh, of, of edibles uh, available there, and it's called miner's lettuce. Uh, miner's lettuce, if you live in the deep south, you may have a little bit of trouble growing it during a lot of the year, but you can probably grow it during your winter. Uh, throughout most of the United States, you're going to grow it in the cooler parts of the year anyway. It's extremely cold-hardy. It pretty much takes uh, being frozen solid to kill it. I've seen miner's lettuce, I've seen it snow, and I've seen the snow eventually slowly melt away in kind of an Indian summertime, and underneath the snow, there's the miner's lettuce, just as good as the day the snow fell on top of it. Uh, it is that hardy. It's a matter of, does enough light get through the snow to keep it alive? Uh, how deep was the snow, so to speak? So, with a little bit of protection, you can have miner's lettuce uh, all throughout the time of the year when it's the hardest to grow other things. Um, it's another one of those things that doesn't have a huge calorie count, but it tastes good and it has a pretty good nutritional profile as well. Uh, the biggest thing that it offers is another great source of vitamin C, and here's the big thing, it tastes good. Uh, it's something I've never shared miner's lettuce with anybody on kind of like a wilderness walk or something where we found it, and they're like, I don't like that. Um, yeah, I don't really quite equate it to lettuce other than there's really nothing else to equate it to. But it doesn't taste anything like an iceberg lettuce or anything like that. It's much more of a leafy plant with a little bit of a succulent nature to it. For the, the, the cultivation at home, some of the advantages that it has is, one, yes, it'll live into those cold times of the year when other things are not available. But, two, it does very well in, in, in pretty heavy shade. It can't be complete shade, but pretty heavy shade where a lot of other things won't grow. Miner's lettuce actually does very well, especially especially to keep it cooler in hotter parts of the year. Uh, it produces seed very easily, harvested seed that can be sown and planted elsewhere and, and reproduced. It comes back year after year after year in the right environment, so it's got that going for it. I want to share a story with you from an email, a very brief email I got from a listener last night that I thought was cool. guy says, his wife said, what about bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches for dinner tonight? She goes, you take care of the bacon, and I'll take care of making the toast and the lettuce and the tomato. And the guy goes, bacon, anything, fine. I'm up for it. He's got the pan out frying bacon. She goes in the closet, and go, or the refrigerator, and goes, oh, no. And he says, what? She goes, we don't have any lettuce, and we're out of tomatoes. And he goes, darn, well, I guess we'll have bacon sandwiches. You know? She goes, oh, wait a minute. She runs out the door. He's like, where the hell is she going? She comes back in. She had a couple little tomatoes that were like the last of their tomatoes from this year. They didn't get a huge harvest, but there was some tomato there and of some, some leaves. And he said, what are those? She said, it's miner's lettuce. So he said they made bacon lettuce and tomato sandwiches using miner's lettuce and a little bit of the tomato that was left from their harvest. And he said it was some of the best PLTs he ever ate. So there's an example of, you know, just having this stuff out there, folks. It's not necessarily that you're using it every day. In fact, if you want it to keep growing and, and, and all, a lot of the stuff maybe you want to limit your harvesting to certain times of the year and treat it more like a crop than just, you know, a, an endless supply of something. But the fact that it's there, there's an example of it was an inconvenience, but in another time and place it could be something that keeps you from going hungry. And that's why I'm talking about all of these types of plants today. Um, 
I want to go into, uh, I think I have, what, two more for you today. One is called sorrel, and there's a lot of different types of sorrel. So, some grows high, some grows low, but what I love about sorrel is its ease of growth, its propensity to come back, uh, the fact that it does grow wild everywhere, and once you know how to recognize it, you, you will be able to find it uh, just about through, you know, I'd say 85% of the United States, the lower 48 anyway. Uh, it's pretty cold hardy. It grows pretty uh, pretty well into the colder parts of the year, so that's always nice as well. It's um, it's also known by some people as sourgrass because it has kind of a sour flavor to it, and that's because, like many of these plants we've talked about today, it's very high in vitamin C. Of course, that's absorbic acid and creates a sour flavor. Uh, so it's a good accent to anything that's maybe sweet to bring it down. Uh, people use it in, in soups. People use this in, uh, in uh, salads. It has some medicinal value to it. Some of the other uh, advantages from a nutritional standpoint, in addition to vitamin C, uh, vitamin B9, uh, provitamin A, magnesium, iron, potassium, um, These are all things that are found in it in significant quantities. So if you start looking at all of these different uh, weeds and you start putting them together and using them as a regular part of your diet, uh, they almost start to read like you're adding multivitamins to your diet without you know, taking a pill. And some people would say to me, why not just stock up a bunch of vitamins in case the shit is defend instead of worrying about all these plants? Well, uh, one, multivitamins... Are, are great, and I think they should be part of your preps, and they're definitely part of my preps, and, and they're a good way to make sure there's at least vitamins there, but it's it's like saying, why not just take a drug instead of eating a whole herb? There's so many components to these plants beyond just these these nutrients and these vitamins. There's phytochemicals, there's fiber, there's and it's the combination. This is the way these things were intended to be consumed, not extracted at a pharmaceutical grade and, and, and you know purified down to single components and then consumed that way. We were part of nature. We came up through, and again, you can be a creationist or an evolutionist, it doesn't matter. There's still a concept of with man being on the planet so long, eating from the planet so long, and from modern agriculture being such a short period of time, human beings on some level evolved based on a diet of the things that come from the planet. Because we're part of the planet, we're part of this place. And when we take these things and we refine them down, we lose all of the things that go with them. So that's another thing to uh, consider with this. So sorrel, consider making that part of what you're growing. And the last one is the only one that's a tree here. And it's one that I, I had a hundred other things I could include with this list. And I thought, do I really want to do this? And I thought, I can't not do this one. Even though a lot of people will already be familiar with it. And that's sumac. Sumac is a tree, and a lot of people are concerned that, hey, I'm going to end up with poison sumac. Um, there is a poison sumac. It looks totally different than any of like the smooth sumacs or uh, staghorn sumacs that you would use as an edible. Uh, the berries grow completely different. Instead of growing in little vertical upward clumps... They grow, they're white and they grow in kind of a trailing, dropping, downward motion. Um, you almost can't do it unless you just want to get it wrong. Uh, so sumac is available everywhere. I've never really looked for sumac plant or sumac seed online, and I don't think you would really need to unless you live in an area where you just can't find any. And I'm sure someone out there on a seed exchange would be happy to send you some sumac seed or maybe even dig up some seedlings and overnight ship them if you paid the shipping because where this stuff grows, it is everywhere. I will never plant it at my bug out location in Arkansas. Indeed, I will probably have to cut some of it down even though I love it because it is everywhere. 
And it is that growth habitat that where it can just live anywhere that just makes it amazing. I mean, we have sumac in Texas, and I grew up with sumac in my backyard in Pennsylvania. Those are pretty different bioregions, folks. Uh, winters are different, summers are different, precipitation different, sumac's still there. Um, it's not one of these things that you're going to just start chomping on. The edible portion of sumac are the berries. They're very high in absorbic acid. This is like a super pill of vitamin C. They have a sweet, tart flavor to them. I've seen people make kind of a rosé wine using juice extracted from them. The common thing that we would do with them in the Pennsylvania summers is cut them, soak them in cold water, kind of bruise them a little bit, pour it through a strainer uh, with a piece of cheesecloth in it to filter out all the little hairs. And uh, once that was done, uh, we would sweeten it and make basically what we would call sumac tea or sumac lemonade. And uh, it was absolutely a great, refreshing summer drink. What I tried with it recently is I got a couple heads of sumac when we were putting together the article on, on, on wild uh, foraging for Ron's magazine, the new edition that's just about to come out. And uh, I made a very, very, very tart, very sour, uh, concentrated uh, version of it. Since I'm not brewing beer right now, and I won't start doing that again until we move as well, along with the other things that I have on, on hold, I decided, let me get a good wheat beer, just a good plain wheat beer, and instead of putting some lemon in there, let's put, let's say, an ounce of uh, sumac extract uh, uh, juice into it, and let's tart up that wheat beer kind of in the, the realm of making a, a Lambic clone beer. Awesome. Absolutely Awesome. Uh, unbelievably simple. Uh, you get a couple heads of sumac, and instead of making a big bowl of it, you make a, a little bit less. Uh, you just use enough water just to cover it. Put that into a bottle. Keep it in the refrigerator. It probably would keep fine on the shelf, but I was keeping it in the refrigerator and just, you know, don't necessarily use an ounce. It's tartar than you think. Uh, maybe use a little bit, taste it, and add it, and find the amount that works for you with a glass of wheat, wheat ale. Oh, my God, it's wonderful. Um, and, again... Very, very high in vitamin C. People often ask me, you know, what about vitamin C and shit at the fan where we can't get citrus fruits? And a lot of these people I ask, well, how much citrus do you eat right now? Most of them realize they don't actually eat that much citrus. Vitamin C is everywhere, but it's also a huge immune booster. It is one of the, uh, nature's miracles. It's something that it's almost impossible to OD on. You eat too much vitamin C and you end up, you know, passing it through your body and urination. Um... I guess it can be done, but I've actually never read of anybody successfully doing it. Uh, I've read reports by one doctor who in New York was able to treat heroin addicts and reduce their symptoms of withdrawal and get them off heroin very quickly without being very sick uh, with huge heroic doses of vitamin C. Uh, I can't remember this guy's name now, but he was a Nobel laureate. And what he said is not only did it help reduce the symptoms of withdrawal, even though they would have to go through some withdrawal, that if he dosed them up with enough vitamin C, if they went out and got more heroin and they took the heroin, it didn't work. Because the vitamin C occupied places on certain neural receptors that basically blocked the heroin's effect. So the addict would just not get the heroin effect and, and, and quit taking the heroin. And he was very successful at getting... And of course, are we using that in our modern drug centers or anything where we're supposed to have this war on drugs? Of course not. And again, you, you know, you can say things are quackery, but this guy, I don't think, won the Nobel Prize, but he was highly considered a couple of years for a Nobel Prize. So this guy's recognized. Again, I'd like... If anybody knows this man's name, uh, please let me know. 
Because I think, and I'll look it up if I can find it. I'll include it in the show notes if I can find it. But I'd love for you guys to look into the research done by uh, by this this gentleman uh, with vitamin C. So sumac, great way to make sure that you have that vitamin C available in significant quantities. Because all of the tartness in the juice, some of the flavor, there is some flavor from the, the, the I don't know, the berry itself, I guess, that that's not just sour. And that's part of why I guess that's the red coloring and things like that you get from the juice. But uh, all of that tartness is from these little hairs on the berries that are just bathed in absorbic acid. And again, absorbic acid being vitamin C. So there you go. There's 10 plants you can consider adding to your backyard that you can also forage for, that you can develop positive identification for uh, as well. So if you ever have to depend on them in the wild, uh, you can find them. I want to talk to you as I wrap up today about a few other things to look at with these uh, these plants and anything else that fits the same bill, so to speak, uh, like them. You know, kind of first, I do want you to realize that, yeah, this these these plants could all be put together and grown in a suburban backyard. And even if you didn't want a conventional, uh, let's say, fruit tree in your yard, or you had a big enough yard to have some fruit trees and have another place where you wanted something ornamental, even the one called sumac, it's actually a very beautiful ornamental tree. And if grown as an individual tree and it doesn't have to compete and you water it and fertilize it and take care of it and trim it, I mean, it's, it can grow into a gorgeous uh, kind of uh, somewhere between a, 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 a large and a mid-sized tree. So it has the, and, and then, you know, fall comes and the leaves turn this brilliant scarlet red color. It's got the red berries on it throughout the year. Easy to grow, can't kill it. So in a, in a suburban backyard, you could have all 10 of these plants growing and anybody could walk through your yard and with the exception of maybe the ground cherries and the maypop, uh, even the semi-informed person may not really realize there's any food there. Certainly from a distance, it wouldn't have to look like a garden. These things could be grown in pots. They could be grown in uh, trailing edges of flower flowers and things like that, uh, flower beds and, and other uh, ornamental arrangements. Some of this stuff can be grown right in your lawn. Chickweed, people get in their lawns and they try to get it out. I mean, I... I love to have, when I find some chickweed on my property, I try to like mow around it and, and let it grow out so I can use it. Uh, sorrel, uh, one I didn't mention today, plantain is another great one. All of these things can be encouraged to grow on your property and they're just there. If you start harvesting seed from them though, and you have access to any type of public land or uncared for private property, what amazing plants to use for gorilla gardening. Especially using the technique called seed bombs or seed balls where you take your seeds and you mix up half clay and you mix up half compost and, and you put your seeds in that mix. You mix it all up and you moisten it and you make it into little pellets, little balls. And then you just start tossing them wherever you want them to grow. They just sit there, baked hard clay in the sun, and then when it rains the clay melts in this little pocket of nutrient-rich soils there. And these plants that have the ability to grow anywhere have a kind of a competitive advantage that you've established for them. You have to be responsible for this. You have to think about invasive species effects. But there's a lot of places. I mean, I also look at what Marjorie uh, from Backyard Food Production says about invasives. What she said is, if there's a plant that provides something edible or fixes nitrogen or can feed our livestock, please invade us. And, and back, back to Bill Mollison's comment about every plant he uses be, is, is, is native to planet Earth. Uh, those two things, I think, kind of temper this. And there's things like a highway median and places like that where a lot of this stuff could be grown. And it's out there and available for use in a tough time. Uh, throughout. And a lot of the stuff, if you 
find it growing in an area, you're only now encouraging it to grow more. So this can be done through things like mulching and, and removing competitive vegetation, but also through harvesting seed, holding seed over through the winter, and not making seed have to go through that winter of moisture and cold and freezing and hot, and then bringing that seed back out to the same location during an optimum time for germination in the spring. There's so many things you can do with the information I gave you today versus just grow 10 plants in your backyard. That's just one component of it. That's how I wanted to make it interesting for you. I wanted to make you realize that you can actually control these plants uh, to a degree, that you can actually cultivate them, that you can go back and get in touch with the roots uh, that, that we all have behind us where the first farmers weren't farmers with a plow. They were simply humans that were able to observe and interact with their environment like we talk about in permaculture and go, this is good to eat. That's a seed for it. I'm going to take that and put it somewhere else, and I know that it needs water and sun. I need to make an environment just like here, over there, and it'll grow, and then we'll have more. You can connect with that with these crops and other crops like them. So give it a shot. Go out there, maybe get a hold of some of these seeds. If you can identify the plants, go out and harvest them. If you're not sure about identification, go to a, a reputable source, buy seed or rootstock or what have you for these individual plants. Plant them, learn to identify them, harvest seed from your own production and cultivate them and get them going and go out and then once you know what something looks like, get out there into the wild and go, hey, you know, This is what this is. And I'll try to take a picture today. Maybe if I can get my son to stand next to it or me to stand next to it to give you an idea of scale. I've got some lamb's quarter growing in my garden that's taller than my head right now about to start producing seed for me. And that's just from a couple plants from a little bit of seed that I harvested by a creek bank that I fish out at a park around here. And the reason I harvested it is the whole field was dead and these from, from drought. And these two lamb's quarters were doing okay. So I watered them through the season to help them get through because they already showed the strength and propensity for me. This is kind of a small-leafed variety of lamb's quarter. And when they got big enough, I harvested some seed, brought it back here, put it in my garden, and oh my God, give it give it a, 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 a what would you call it, a, a, a positive growing environment. And it just went nuts. And I'm going to be able to harvest a lot of seed just from these two plants this year. And I've been eating the leaves and thrown into my salad and things like that throughout the year. So I'll try to get a picture of that for you as well. Again, no show tomorrow. Call-in show on Friday. I'm about to take a break, eat some breakfast, and do that show for Friday. Get it ready to go. Uh, discount code that will run from Friday through Sunday. BOL, $15 off, the member support brigade to make up for the fact there will be no show tomorrow. With that, this has been Jack Spirico, and I really want to encourage you uh, to look at these plants and start considering what you want to do with them. And I also want to light one little bit of fire under your butts as I sign off today. Today is September 15th, and I forgot to say this when I signed on today. September 15th. September is half over. September's half over. 2010 is a hair's breath from going into the history books. Time marches on. Winter is coming. Where are you at in your preps? Some things seem to be getting better, but a lot of things seem to be getting worse. We've talked about a lot of things that don't look well for our future right now. I believe we can live better lives in good times and bad, but I believe we better prepare for the tough times. For those of you procrastinating, September 15th, It was summer yesterday. Fall's coming. Still hot here in Texas. But last night, I went outside and cooked steak, and it was humid out. 
I came inside. I went out a half hour later, and the wind came in. And when my wife came out, she said she got goosebumps from the temperature change. I thought she was crazy, but I did feel the change. The change is coming. Time's marching on. Be prepared. Be ready. Things are coming that we really don't want to accept, but we need to accept, and we need to build our self-sufficiency and self-reliance now more than ever. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there can.